Hope everyone's having a good Sunday so far. So glad to see everyone here. We are continuing our series through the book of Colossians, and we'll be in Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1, if you wanted to prepare your Bibles for that. But when we get there, don't worry, it'll be also on the screen. And through the book of Colossians, we've seen how Paul is speaking to this church that he actually has never visited before, and he's talking to them and encouraging them in their faith and addressing some issues, kind of supporting and building up who Christ is in their minds so that they can stand firm in that faith and not be kind of swayed by different philosophies or different beliefs that might be bringing people uh, to question who Christ is. And so he's been focused on that. And then we took a turn kind of last week where he he starts speaking, because in light of that, because in light of the gospel, there's now a different way to live, a different way to process how to operate in this world. And so Bruce Sears, one of our elders, walked us through about how we have to put to death these things and also put on righteous behavior. And so uh, what we're about to in, um, engage with is kind of extension beyond that as well, about how the gospel impacts our lives. But before we dig into that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time, a time that we can gather, enjoy each other's companies, sing songs to you, pray to you, and then hear from you from your word. So Lord, I pray for this time as we open up your word that you use it to build us up. You use it to make us your people. That you show us the truth on how we're supposed to operate in this life for your glory. That we can be yours in all that we do. Lord, we love you. We seek you and pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So when I was young, I think around the junior high kind of time, I, I was sent off to this program, this, this, these classes called Cotillion. If you guys are familiar with Cotillion, it's, it's where they try to make uh, rogue little boys prim and proper, right? So they, they you send, like my, par- my parents wanted me to gain some manners or uh, gain some ways in understanding how to relate to society. And so they made me go to this class where you had to wear a suit, you learned how to dance, you learned how to talk to people, you learned how to eat dinners and all this stuff. And I was a very shy child, and so my mom did this thinking, hey, if I gave my son some manners, some, some understanding of etiquette, then most likely he would feel more secure in going out into the world. Well, it didn't really help, but, you know, it's... Um, I don't think I'm any less socially awkward, but I do know how to do the waltz, so that's a plus. But in all fairness, I understand what my mom was trying to do, and I appreciate it. I can appreciate her intent because etiquette is important. Especially if you are a self-conscious individual like myself, you can worry about what you're supposed to do or how you're supposed to act in different situations. And you can really kind of beat yourself up. You walk in and say, is this what I'm supposed to do? Am I supposed to be doing this? Or am I going to get in trouble? Maybe it's just me. But etiquette is important. Etiquette, this this general rules for manners of how you behave and how you operate in society is important because it helps people relate to each other and know what's expected of them. So it shouldn't surprise us that when we come to the Christian life, Paul starts talking 
you might say about Christian etiquette. Basically, now in light of Christ, now in light of the gospel, how do we live? How are you supposed to relate to one another? How are you supposed to act? How are you supposed to react? How are you supposed to speak? How are you supposed to love? And so he talks in terms about what is the proper behavior of a Christian. And last week, as I mentioned before, Bruce led us through about there's, there is proper behavior for a Christian. There are things we're not supposed to engage in, and there's things we're supposed to have part of our lives. And now when we come to... Uh, chapter 3, verse 18, we, we see a shift where Paul starts talking about how that etiquette for how a Christian behaves does not just stay personal, individual, but actually goes into the home and how we order and operate as Christians. It's funny that I actually just performed a wedding uh, yesterday of a young man, Lane Paul, who, who goes here, and it was a great great um, time, and sometimes people might think about uh, God actually giving us rules and standards for the home, and they can question it, like, who is God to give us those standards? And it just reminds me of, I always usually start off a ceremony with a line similar to that the home is one of the only two institutions that God has given us, the other being the church, but it's the home that he gave us first, Christian marriage, the home. Well, if, if that's true, which I believe it is, that we see through the Bible, if God gave us this, then he has the right to tell us how it should be ordered. He has the right and the responsibility to tell us how it should be operated. And that is what we see in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. And so let's, if you have your Bibles, you can pull open it to Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. If not, it's going to be on the screen. And Paul starts talking like this. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. A God-ordered and God-centered home honors God. That's what we see here. That's when, when Paul lays out these rules or how we're supposed to relate to each other, we see this fact that when we order our home, order our relationships in a way that is given by God, in a way that is centered on God, it actually is pleasing to God. It honors God for being our master. It honors God for being our Lord. And not only is it, is it, is it good for him, or I mean, I should say it's, it honors him, but it's good for us. For if the designer says it should be ordered like this, then we should follow that design. If, if God says it should be uh, put together like this, we should follow those instructions because he knows what he's talking about. And if, so it brings us, um, it supports us, it enriches us, it blesses us when we follow how God has outlined how the family should operate. 
A God-ordered and God-centered home honors God. And that's what we see in this passage. So when we read this passage, the first thing we should note is that uh, where, the, where it falls in the context of this passage. Sometimes we read our Bibles and we see those headings and we see like an abrupt break from what came right before than what is going on right here. And so if that's true, we, we can read and we just we read about how in everything we should do, we should serve the Lord. And then all of a sudden there's a harsh break and we see that that uh, heading that says rules for Christian households or something along those sense, and we think this is almost separate. But as I've, I've already said, it's not. The context is, hey, we're living out the Christian life. There's things we don't do, there's things we do do, and now there's actually things that we do in our family, in our home, in our households that bring glory to God. And that these instructions are just a natural continuation of what Paul was saying at the beginning of chapter 3. That in light of the gospel, we respond with all of who we are. And that's really important. Before we move on to what Paul is saying and how things should be ordered, we have to get this straight, that this all rests on the gospel. He is speaking to Christians who know who Jesus Christ is, know what he's done for them, knows that they were sinners and they were lost and they were destined to be away from God, dead and in hell, but Christ came and saved them. And because of that, this new life has, has permeated their being and they're changed from the inside out and they're transformed and it, stop, and it affects how they act with people, it affects how they, they live life, and it affects now even how they operate as a family. And if we don't understand that first part, that it rests on the gospel, we turn this into a list of rules of do nots and do's that are separated from the person of Christ. And so we have to stand on that truth that all that comes after is in light of who he is. That if you proclaim Christ as your Savior, if you are changed and transformed by his Spirit working in you, we live by the Word and now we are changed by him to operate as he leads us to operate. And so Paul says this effect of the Spirit doesn't just change us individually, it even impacts the household. During the time that Paul was writing, the household was recognized as that basic unit of society. It's recognized as that stabilizing element for the Roman Empire. That if households operated correctly, then the whole government, the whole society would be operating correctly. And because of that, there were many people, secular people, who would write lists of rules for households, how households should be managed. And so now Paul comes and he kind of uses that same idea, but says, but we're different because we stand in Christ. And so why the rules that they might have given as a secular society to do this or to do that, he says, in light of Christ, we operate as Christ would have us operate with each other. And this is so important because we know the truth of that even today about how the home, the household is so important. We can look at society at large and we can see what happens when the household is neglected and, and what happens when uh, households fracture in, our, in, in, in the effects of society. And that the society as a whole benefits from when households are 
doing well or operating as they should be and held together. And that's true with the gospel, that when the gospel enters a household and, and the household is held together by the, the gospel, that the home becomes a force for the gospel in its community as families are reaching out and people see the effect of the gospel on us in our lives and extending beyond that to our neighbors in our workplaces. But there's also something deeper going on there for a Christian when the household is that in the home, you have the closest, most familiar relationships you probably ever have. And if you're Christians, if you follow Christ, shouldn't it, shouldn't it be that those relationships are where the, where the reality of our faith are manifested the most? As we are eating together, living together, playing together, doing all that happens in a household as believers, shouldn't that be where the reality of our faith and how we live is shown to one another? And that there should be a marked difference between a loving Christian household than some other household that's not based on the truth of the gospel? Because we know a God-ordered and God-centered home honors God, it benefits us as well. So Paul, knowing this, being convinced of this, is speaking this truth to the Christians in Colossia, and he wants them to understand how the house should be ordered, the home should be conduct, conducted. And so he says, hey, these are some specific, I can't even say it now, were uh, commands for relationships and how we relate together. And when you read this, you see actually there's, there's a hierarchy being placed in these relationships. There's mutual accountability, but there's different responsibility, and there's kind of three pairings that he puts forward from wives and husbands and children and fathers and bondservants and masters, but all three of these are kind of held together by this idea that some people lead and some people submit. And some people willingly know that my place in this order is to listen to commands and to follow and to operate as I'm told. And some people's place in this is actually to lead and to lead. But all of it is done under, under the gospel. All of it is done as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we, it's all tied together as this understanding that there's this hierarchy in all these relationships which kind of rubs us the wrong way a little bit because we're Americans, we're independent, we don't like to take orders, we don't like to submit, which kind of brings us to that first order or command that Paul says is how we are supposed to order our relationships. And Paul starts with the husband and wife relationships. And if he doesn't say something that is the most unpopular thing nowadays to say, I don't know what is. But simply he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And we read that. And if we are in the society at all, we almost want to defend it. We almost want to say, well, he's not talking about that. Oh, he's, he's not talking about that. But no, he says it simply. And if we're confused about that, we can read in the, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6, which is a much extended version of this exact same command. They marry each other and parallel each other exactly. 
And so people say this, this is like a countercultural command nowadays because people don't want to submit. They think this is not how life should be, that, the, that we are proud, as I said, proud people who don't like to take orders or commands or hints or instructions, and we want to be our own people. But the whole idea of submission is ingrained within the Christian faith because submission is about how we come to the Lord. Submission is how we understand that we are not enough. Submission is understanding that we don't have it all together that we don't know everything. And so at the very least, we have to understand that we submit to God and we submit to his word and we listen to what he has to say and how he leads us. And that we're reminded again that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so this whole idea that, that of submission is going to be running through these three pairings. We have to get through our minds that submission's not a bad thing. Submission's not saying that you're less than. But it is saying that how things are ordered, sometimes you listen to instruction and follow how they are instructing you to go because that is how God reveals it in his word. But you know what's funny about, we read this and we're like, man, how could Paul say that to wives without realizing that back then this is also a countercultural thing because Paul was actually speaking to wives. Because back then, wives in the, in, the, in the households at large were actually not really treated as citizens. They were more like property of their husbands, and so they weren't really upheld with honor. But yet here comes Paul, understanding the Christian dynamic, the Judeo-Christian ethic of God created man and woman equal, equal in dignity and equal in worth. And so now when he's talking to Christian households, he says, wives, you have a responsibility in this household, and that is to support what is happening in this household. That is to be, as Genesis kind of 2 points us to, how the woman was designed to be the ally for her husband so that they can fight the good fight of the faith. And so he's laying this out. And that we know from the rest of the Bible that the Bible is actually really pro-women. Again and again, we, we can almost defend how the Bible upholds the dignity of women again and again, how they're mentioned better than the men in almost all cases, where we see these women upheld and, uh, with honor and dignity, how we even see one listed among the judges in the book of Judges and how we see God knows that they're equal, how they play key roles, do noble actions, how they're even listed in the lineage of Jesus himself, how they were some of the first followers of Jesus, how they were some of the first evangelists, evangelists for Jesus, and so on. And so I feel like we can stop having to defend the Bible. We know it gives honor and dignity to the woman, and so now we have to address what this command is. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting, fitting to the, in the Lord. So what does it mean to submit? Well, we, let's start with what doesn't mean first. It doesn't mean all women submit to all men. Again, the context of this command, in the household, husband and wife, that's how it relates. It doesn't place women all of a sudden below all men. It's saying husband and wife, this is how it works. It doesn't mean that the woman, the wife, needs to be passive and not have opinions. That's not what it's saying. You're supposed to be an active helper, an active support in this. It doesn't mean there's less value or capability in the wife than her husband. That's not true. If you want a case study, just look at my life. My wife is much more capable than me. That's why she talks to people on the phone and I don't. This doesn't give ground for a, 
accept any form of abuse. That somehow because wives are supposed to submit to husbands, you allow abuse to happen. No, that's not what it's saying. It doesn't mean that husbands get to throw this verse in the face of their wives. No, it's a command to the wife, not to the husband. That this is a responsibility, Paul speaking to the wife, and so the husband shouldn't use this as something to uh, wield, but rather it's what the wife should yield to. So that's not what it means. But what does it mean then? Well, it means that God has ordered the home in such a way that the husband should lead in Christ and the wife should support, help, be that ally in the home. That God has designed this. We see it from the very beginning in Genesis 2. And it's supported here that the wife supports the home, helps her spouse, honors God when she humbly accepts godly leadership. Because as is said, the wife is called to do this as is fitting in the Lord. Which could be a caveat for every single command that we're about to see. All of this is done with the idea that we do all of these things as is fitting the Lord, that God has ordered relationships in such a way that they honor each other, they, they work well and better, and they, they allow the family to prosper, and that's all as fitting in the Lord. That the Lord designed it this way, and we pay attention and operate as He has directed us. And so after He tells the wife this command, Paul turns his attention to the husband and says, you're supposed to love your wife, and not be harsh with them. We can see this, and I think the world at large, and maybe even ourselves, we see this command, and we almost think it's the easier command. We think it's the privileged command. We think, oh, all they're supposed to do is love them, and not be harsh with them. That seems pretty easy, but we see this because sometimes I think we're still caught up in the world, and we see love as that emotional feeling or that 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 fuzzy feeling, the warm fuzzies we get when we we see someone we like, and we're like, "Oh man, I love them," and they make me feel happy. But that's not how the Bible really describes love. Yeah, that's included. But when we think about love, of course, we have to go to First Corinthians chapter thirteen when it talks about love. How love is patient, how love is kind, does not seek evil, but it seeks good. We see that as being the basis of love. This is someone who's not looking out for themselves, but looking out for someone else. And so that undergirds this whole command to love. Not only that, but when we read this, we're reading it in light of the gospel. And therefore, when we see love, we see it as the standard of Jesus. How Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that if I lay down my life for my friends. And so when we understand love as a Christian, it's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, a romantic kind of sense. No, it's a sacrificial call to love someone more than yourself. It's a sacrificial call to put their interests before your own. It's a sacrificial call to make sure they're taken care of before you're taken care of. And so that is what Paul is calling for the husbands, that in light of the gospel, you now love your wives greater than yourselves. That in light of the gospel, you now love your wives sacrificially, making sure they're taken care of before yourself. In light of the gospel, you're not harsh with them because you should seek their well-being. That is what the husband is called. That he gets maybe some leadership in the family, but it is a servant leadership. It's not the leadership of people outside the church that think leadership means they get more accolades or get more power or get more, get more 
good stuff. It's a leadership where someone serves and makes sure people are taken care of. And the husbands are given the responsibility of take care of your wives so they're not lacking. They're led to know who Christ is and walk in his ways. Do nothing for yourself, but rather care for them. Don't be harsh with them, because you're supposed to love them. As I said, this whole dynamic goes back to Genesis 2, where God created the first human, Adam. And then out of Adam, he created woman. And Adam saw woman and said, whoa, woman. And he knew they were made for each other. And God said this was supposed to be a helper. We see that term helper and we're like, oh, that's something less. No, the Holy Spirit's called a helper. God himself is called a helper. This is an ally in the fight that God knew that he was setting Adam and Eve in the garden and the enemy would come and he needed someone to watch his back. And so he gave him Eve to watch his back. And that is the image we get of husband and wife. And we just understand that. I mean, we understand that in any kind of relationship, any kind of dynamic, there has to be some leader and someone who follows the lead. When I learned how to waltz, someone had to lead the waltz. Or you're stepping on each other's toes. If you ride a tandem bicycle, you're both pedaling in the same direction, but there's only one person steering that bike. In the same way in a husband and wife relationship, God has ordered it where there's submission and there's leadership and they should operate both out of love for each other, respect for one another, and they operate as God has designed a home to operate. A God-ordered and God-centered home honors God. But there's also just a word for people who might be reading this and say, this is not my situation. I'm single. Maybe I was married before, or, or maybe I have never been married. Maybe you're looking for marriage. Well, if you're, if you're looking and wanting to be married one day, then you read this as that kind of preparation for what you should look for and how you should prepare your mind and how to operate. But if you're single and you don't see that be changing anytime soon, we also see you see your status as a gift because singleness is called a gift from God, just as marriage is called a gift from God. And that's how come the context is so important that we know that everything we do, we do, we're supposed to honor God because that's what this whole extended passage in chapter three is about. Wherever you find yourself, you're honoring God. But in this relationship, he gives us specific commands, and then he continues talking about kids and parents. And again, you see that dynamic. This dynamic we probably don't question as much as husband and wife, but children are supposed to obey in everything. Again, that's hitting a submission theme. And it might not be popular, and, but we understand that kids are supposed to listen to their parents. They're trained in instruction. They're, they mature as they listen to the parents are guided in a right way, but there are thought processes that are floating out there that really don't highlight that and try to undermine that. I mean, there, if you've watched any kids' programs lately, which if you have kids, which I do, you watch too many of them, you, you understand there is this pervasive philosophy of trying to remove the authority of parents. And not, I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means, 
But you just have to listen to some songs that are sung, and you're like, wow, this is insane. My, my daughter has a little um, Elsa doll from Frozen, right, that sings uh, Let It Go all the time. If you press that button, which she does all the time. And, and I, I was listening to a sermon this, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and they pointed out to some of those lyrics, and I could just listen to what this little girl is belting out and what my daughter is singing along to. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Really? Is that how we want people to operate in this life? Is that what I want my daughter to live by? And Paul is coming and says, no, in Christ, children, obey your parent because they're supposed to be leading you and training you in the Lord. They're supposed to be guiding you and loving you and giving you what you need to mature as a good follower of Christ. And I love it because we can just see this when we go back to that parallel passage in Ephesians 6, 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord, giving us that further insight that we do this. It says, Fathers, but we can just say, Parents, parents, do this. We instruct their kids. Why? So that they're brought up in the instruction of the Lord. That they know who God is and they can respond to Him and know how they're supposed to live in this life. Children are supposed to follow, and then parents are supposed to train them with love and train them to be who God wants them to be. That one of the most, maybe the most important thing a parent will ever do is raise kids for the glory of Christ. And when you, when you chalk it up, when you're standing at the end of your time and you're thinking about all your life and you can look back upon your kids and say, I did my best. I, I modeled well. I served well. I loved well. I taught them who Christ was. And we leave whether they stand in Christ or not to God. But we say, I did my best. Maybe the most impactful thing we could do for society or for the church is actually to raise our kids in the ways of God. I'm, I'm really privileged to stand as a long lineage of people who followed Christ. I, on my shelf in my book, I have Bibles from family members, from great-grandparents that I can pull down and see this was a Bible gifted to them, maybe not their original Bible, but they held it in their hands. And so I can have this long lineage of faith that I can look back on and say, I am privileged in that. And so whether you stand in that line or not, if you're the first Christian in your family or you stand from a long lineage, you can say, I am given this, this duty as a parent to lead my kids in the ways of God for the glory of God. And that kids are called to listen to their parents and be trained and trained to understand how to follow, trained so they can follow who God is and know who God is through them. And a word for people who might not have kids. That reality can be heartbreaking for so many, and so you can, we can read this and say, well, that's not me, and, or maybe you're just waiting and still expecting, and so you can read this as, as ways to uh, be encouraged to order your life in the future. But everyone can read this and see the fact that we're all called to help with the ordering of family, and that with 
People without kids can be encouraged to find younger people to help spiritually mentor them and, be, and, and take a place sometimes if they don't have a parent of the faith. But in all what you do, whatever your family's situation, we're still called to honor the God. We're still called to follow and give glory to him in all that we do because we know a God-ordered and God-centered home honors God. And then finally, Paul gets to servants or bond servants and masters. So households were much bigger then than there are now. And so households would not only include your, your biological relatives, but they would also include your servants. And these, this word bond servants is, has this kind of big range. Some translations say slaves, some say bond servants, some say ser, uh, servants. And it's just the same word, doulos, because there's all this all that could be possible. These could be people who willingly sold themselves into servitude because they had financial problems. These could be people who were taken captive in a war and sold into some kind of servitude. These could be uh, people with more freedom or less freedom. So there's this huge range there in this word. Um, And some people say that during this time, about one-third of the Roman population would have fallen into this broad category of bondservant. Someone you're working for someone else because they're taking care of you, because they legally might even own you as property. But then all of a sudden, so in this really common relational context, being served and being a servant, Christ's economy comes into it and changes it. That those roles might not change, but now how you relate to each other changes because you're both brothers and sisters in Christ. And so now how you love each other and how you treat each other should change. Should change. And when we read this, it's easy for us to make the application, I think it's a good application, that how we apply nowadays is more along the lines of that employee and employer that these are people who have authority for income over someone and those people who work for someone else. So the servant, the bond servant, is called to work for their master, not as if they're just working for the master. They're called to work for their master as if they're working for God himself, as they're working for Christ himself. I love how he goes into detail because you can imagine these people who say, oh, you don't know my boss. How am I supposed to work for that person as if I'm working for Christ? And he says, not just giving you know, the perception of doing it, not just on a veneer of doing it, not just to please the eye, but actually do it to serve faithfully to do this well. Why you can do this well? Because you know that there is a God who's going to judge wrongdoing. So he's going to make wrongs right. And people will have to stand before him at the end. And then reversely, the master, the person with authority who's in charge, has said, hey, do your authority. Rule how you rule. Instruct how you're going to instruct. But do it fairly and justly. Why? Because you yourself have a master. 
That if you stand below God and know that he's going to judge you and that he's looking at you and that he's giving you a model to follow and he's giving you instructions to love and to serve, then how you lead, how you rule, those who are under you should change likewise and follow suit. That you should love and serve as he has called you to do so. That Christ's economy changes how we relate, not, GV, not just with our blood relatives, but even to those who we work with or work for, that we're seeking to honor God and everything. Because a God-centered and God-ordered home honors God. And I think there's a reason that this passage is kind of bookend by two verses. Verses 17 and verses 23 to 24, that... If you have read this recently, or just remember from last week, or and read uh, this, this uh, Sunday, they're almost identical. They're the same command. So we go to verse 17 of Colossians, says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That this command, that whatever you do, he's almost like, if I forgot to give you a situation, whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. And then write it back down in 23, it says, whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. They're the same command. He bookends these commands of how we're supposed to operate and how we're supposed to live by this command, which, which I love because it's like, hey, if you found yourself not in this situation, if, this is not, if you think this doesn't apply to you, it does. Whatever you do in your life, when you wake up and you get going, whatever you're doing, you're doing it for the glory of God. That sounds excessive. But he's saying this is what happens when the gospel grabs hold of us, that we're changed. And we want this change to impact every area of our life. We want the gospel to be shining through the truth and the love of God shining through in whatever we do. That we realize what we're going through on a day-to-day basis is bigger and grander, has more meaning and purpose, and is everlasting more than what we see. That we're actually living for God, and it makes a difference. That whatever you do, do it for the glory of our Lord. Even how we operate in our life, in our homes. So what do we say from this? I think applications for if you're a husband and wife or you're a child or you're a parent, if you're working for someone or you have people working for you, they're there, right? You can pull how we're supposed to operate, how we're supposed to operate and honor him. But in all these things, and whatever we do, we focus on Christ and say, I'm living for him. I'm following him. I want to be as he has called us to be, that God calls all of us. The biggest deception, I think, in modern thinking is that God calls your spiritual self or God calls a little chunk of you here and there. No, the Bible makes it clear that when God calls you to Him, He calls all of you. He calls your work life, your family life, your personal life, your, your, your public life. He calls all of you to follow. 
Because he has saved all of you through Jesus Christ. And because of that, we order our lives to give glory to God. We order our families to give glory to God. I just want to end with a small little prayer from a book called The Valley of Vision. It's a, it's a collection of uh, prayers from the Puritans. And there's a prayer there about um, your, uh, the, the godly uh, family life. And so I just want to end this. And I, I want us to pray this truth together. It says, Sanctify and prosper my dom- domestic devotion, instruction, discipline, example, that my house may be a nursery for heaven, my church the garden of the Lord, enriched with, with tresses of righteousness, of your planting for your glory. Shouldn't we all be praying this? That may my home, my house, be a nursery for heaven? That as we operate as Christians on this mortal plane, how we organize our home, we give glory to God in all things. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. That we can see it, read it, understand it, know what we've been called to that we can do all things in light of the gospel, that you have saved us and called us to yourself. And when you call us, you call us not to say as we were, but to follow you, to be changed from the inside out as your word, and as your spirit works on us. So Lord, I pray for all of us here, wherever we find ourselves in life, if we're in one of these categories addressed, or in a different situation, that we can do all things to the glory of you. That we can live all things as if we're doing them, serving your Son. Lord, we love you. We ask that you continue to work in us. Show us where we need to be corrected. Show us where we have done well. Encourage us. Motivate us. Pull us ever so more gently to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together.